You're listening to What Mad Universe on the HyperX Podcast Network. Check out all our shows on podcast.hyperx.com. Content warning. Eugenics, racism, violence, sex, drugs, incest, non-consensual sex, and the power of a million suns. Action, excitement, horror, romance, thrills and chills, swords and sorcery, rockets and ray guns, a dizzying panoply of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination. What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. There were no more heroes. Kennedy was dead, shot by an assassin in Dallas. Batman and Robin were dead, killed when the Batmobile slammed into a bus carrying black children to school in the suburbs. Superman was missing, and presumed dead, after a kryptonite meteor fell on Metropolis. The Marvel family was dead, struck down by lightning. The Lone Ranger was dead, found with an arrow in his back after Tonto returned from a Red Power conference at Wounded Knee. Mary Matra was dead. Cut to pieces by an Amtrak locomotive when Dr. Spock tied her to the tracks and she couldn't remove her gag. Captain Mantra was in a sanitarium near Edgeville, said to be a helpless wreck ever since seeing his twin sister cut the shreds. Only Wonder Woman was still in the public eye, and she had forsworn ever the use of her superpowers. Using her real name, Diana Prince, she was a leading spokesperson for Women's Liberation, an associate editor of Miss Magazine, a frequent guest on late-night talk shows. Her message was that of the strength of Wonder Woman resides in all women, and that they must learn to use it. Battling to liberate womankind, she said, was more important than catching Patty Crooks. She sounded at times like a sinner repentant. Even Snoopy had bought it, shot down by the Red Baron, missing in action over France. In this fading pantheon of heroes, the very last to give up combat against the forces of tyranny and evil had been the most powerful hero of all and he had not been seen in almost a decade, not since unknown to the world his superpowers had unaccountably begun to fail. Using his secret identity, David Brinkley, he had slipped into the humdrum routine of middle-class life. He was 42 years old. He was married with two children, and a third was due any day. He expected never again to dash into a phone booth, strip down to his uniform, don his purple mask, and leap into battle against the forces of darkness. He had outgrown such childish notions, but lived only in his dreams. So he thought. Superfolks, 1977, by Robert Mayer. Look, up in the air, it's a bird, it's a blimp. No, it's What Mad Universe. This strange podcast from another world fights a never-ending battle for truth, justice, and old pulp books that inspired modern pop culture. <coughs> I'm your mild-mannered host, Philip Rice. And with me, as always, is Adam Prosser. Hello. And today, I'll be telling Adam about the 1977 satirical superhero novel, Super Folks, by Robert Mayer, a largely unsung step in the process that brought us Squadron Supreme, Miracle Man, Watchman, and other examples of so-called superhero deconstruction. We'll be right back after this. Make room for huge plays with the HyperX Alloy Origin 65 mechanical gaming keyboard and the Pulsefire Haste wireless mouse. The Alloy Origin 65 has a functionally compact form factor, keeping the arrow keys while ditching the numpad and the F keys. The Pulsefire Haste is the lightest wireless mouse from HyperX, featuring a robust connection and the precision you need to click heads. The Alloy Origin 65 and Pulsefire Haste Wireless, a terrific twosome to keep your setup clean and clutter-free. Video Death Loop is the show where we watch a short video clip on loop until we just can't take it anymore. Along the way, we'll try our best to make each other laugh and to hold out longer than the other guy. Come in on any episode. 
Video Death Loop. New episodes every Friday. Um, all right. So, uh, Adam, uh, do you know anything about this book? No, basically not really. I mean, I, just what you said, that it's a deconstructionist satirical superhero novel from the 1970s. Yeah, um, and it's often uh, credited as inspiring Watchmen, Miracle Man, and uh, Whatever Happened to Man of Tomorrow, uh, three major Alan Moore works. It has some sort of plot points in common, but it's a very different beast from all of them. And I, I, I think it's really uh, overstating it. If like even if Alan, we have no evidence that Alan Moore ever read this book, and even if he did and got some ideas from it, like. Watchmen's more than the basic, you know, idea of a conspiracy to kill superheroes, you know? Like, it's far more than that, so... Yeah, um, it's, it's, I mean, to say it's a satire on superheroes and therefore it all traces back to that book, I mean, there's, like, if you want to go... It's, it's, people have been mocking superheroes basically since they existed. I mean, Mad Magazine was a huge part of, like, deconstructing and mocking superheroes in the 50s. You know, it's it's not... yeah. Well, um, in this case, it, it's plot points, uh, like the idea of a, a, a decades-long conspiracy to kill superheroes. Uh, that's the Watchmen connection. Uh, the idea of um, Captain Marvel Jr. going berserk and uh, turning into a supervillain is Miracle Man. I haven't actually read that, but I know that's a thing in Miracle Man. Yes. And uh, in Whatever Happened to the Man of, the, the Man of Tomorrow, uh, Mr. Mixie's Pitalek turns out to be really evil and is behind everything. Right. And that's the case in this book as well. Oh. Not Mixie's Pidlick, but like a thinly veiled analog. Right. So, I mean, but those are like really broad strokes ideas. And there's more to all three of those works, or at least the two that I've read, um, than those elements. So I think it's it's unfair to say Alan Moore has like plagiarized this book, even if he did get ideas from it. And we don't even know that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, I would agree. I, I suspect Alan Moore probably did read it, um, you know, because he's pretty omnivorous when it comes to reading. I know that his his he, he's sometimes credited with having like read everything in the universe, and and that may be an exaggeration. As we've as we've said, there's a few books out there that seem like he didn't really actually read them that he referenced in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, for instance. But um, but that I think that was probably right around the time Alan Moore was at his most enthusiastic about superheroes, and people in general were at their most enthusiastic about superheroes. So it's quite possible he did read it. I, who, who knows? But yeah. I yeah, um, definitely uh, Grant Morrison has read it and um, um, quite liked it, uh, and also insinuating that, insinuated that Alan Moore ripped it off, because... You know, Morrison and Moore have a thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, Kurt Busiek uh, has cited it as a direct uh, influence on Astro City. Uh, I believe he actually said Astro City wouldn't exist if he hadn't read this book, which is interesting. Because hmm. it's actually a very different thing. But I can see the connections. Like, the first Astro City story is uh, its Superman analog, sort of his internal life. Uh, right. Uh, Samaritan in, in Astro City, and that's what this book is about, basically. Yeah, um, it's worth noting, I think, that um, right up until, like the the in many ways, the big uh, transformation with Alan Moore and and Marvel Man or Miracle Man um, was the first step in it, and then Watch, but Watchmen is the thing that people encountered more in. Uh, America, because Americans hadn't actually read Marvel Man and Miracle Man for the most part. It was it was a very British book, but in both cases, it was the se it wasn't so much. It, while it was deconstructionist, deconstructionist superheroes had been done for like at least a decade. Like it's a hallmark of the late Bronze Age, going up into the eighties. Um, what really makes it distinctive, I think, is that it has a point of view that ta that and and a style that is completely different from what we expect from superhero comics. Like, superhero comics were expected up until Watchmen to be kind of done in this overcooked, um, kid-friendly, but not 
inherently kid-friendly, but like there was a certain visual language and grammar, uh, well, visual, but also literally the writing style of superheroes was a certain way. Like Stan Lee, there was the Golden Age, then there was Stan Lee's take on it, and then, you know, that kind of got refined through the 70s. But it was this sort of larger-than-life, people loudly declaring their feelings and maybe describing things as they happened in unnecessary yeah. ways. Um, characters having fairly, fairly thin characterizations even when they do had they did have deeper motivations it was more about the big ideas than the than the than the the characterizations um and more brought a naturalism to it and also a sort of artistic poetic style to it that that really changed the paradigm and that became sort of the the go-to for superhero comics yes yes um for this episode i read uh, also read squadron supreme uh by mark runewald and a bunch of artists uh, normally i'd name the artists but there's is like an, almost a different one each issue. Um, uh, the only one I really recognized was Sal Buscema. Anyway, uh, it's mostly Mark Grunewald, who was an editor uh, at Marvel, um, and this was sort of his like his baby. And it's considered it's often also cited as a precursor to Watchmen, but it's and it only came out in '85, so it's like almost immediately before Watchmen. But it it is what you were talking about, like they. It's trying to deal with issues, but everybody talks like a Stan Lee character. Right. Um, I'm I not mean, sure I, if you've read that one. No, I haven't, actually. But I would argue that going, like, you can go as far back, like, deconstructing superheroes goes back at least to uh, Amazing Fantasy number seven and the first Spider Man story, because that yeah. is a deconstruction of superhero story. The origin of Superman, uh, Spider Man is a deconstructive uh, superhero story. That was actually the point. I'm, I'm not. Uh, there's some debate over this, but I don't, you know, he, they never thought it would necessarily get any further stories with Spider-Man. It was, it was meant to be the sort of one-off, what if I kind of blew up superheroes behind me because that book was being canceled and Stan didn't know how long the, the Marvel, uh, or wasn't even called Marvel at that point, how long the bullpen was going to survive at that point. Um, but yeah, it's very much a, what if we did the opposite of what we expect from superheroes? So it's been part of that genre almost as long as it's been around in that sense. Yeah. And squadrons, but squadron Supreme was like an attempt to deal with, um, real issues. And like the, the idea of a, a justice league analog taking over the world based or taking over America at least and trying to solve all the social issues and stuff and, and kind of screwing up and, um, you know, trampling on people's civil liberties. But again, everybody talks like a Stan Lee character. <laughs> Right, like they all have cute nicknames for each other, and like uh, I, I don't know, every everybody just says what they what they're feeling. Right, <laughs> like there's no like levels to it. It's just like um, that makes me feel angry. <laughs> yeah, well, my my impression of the dialogue. This is an actual dialogue from the book, but it's like, gee, hype. I don't think we should be mind watching these palookas. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, yeah. well, that's that's almost more of a Kirby. A dialogue than a Stan Lee dialogue. Well, uh, I, I'm just ma I don't think anybody says palookas, but you know. Yeah. Oh, I see what you're um, saying. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, but just maybe. Like, <laughs> maybe at some just point. Just very do. stilted. Not not exactly Stan Lee. It's not quite as bombastic, but it's right. got that sort of um, very unnaturalistic dialogue, which is amazing. That Watchmen came out like a year or two later. Like the first issue was '87, right? Right. Yeah, no, yeah. Uh, 86 is is the year that Watchmen Okay, came so out. just a year after Watchmen came out. Yeah, yeah. Watchmen doesn't have perfectly naturalistic dialogue. It's and still... actually now that you mention it, I believe Watchmen uh the first issue of Watchmen actually came out in 1985 and it was the collected edition that came out in 1986. So it is basically almost the same time. Um yeah. so it's another example of those superhero comics, you know, having something in the water where you get a couple of things that are along the same lines at the same time possibly. Yeah. And it's not just the dialogue. There's also a lot of like political naivete in, in it. Um, mm -hmm. I, I don't know. There, and there's an issue that implies that, or basically states that eugenics works, which is unfortunate. Mm. Again, um, well, again, it's it's worth noting that uh, superheroes had been kind of struggling with the political stuff. Again, uh, the '60s yeah, Marvel stuff the, had that, um, and, and definitely in the '70s, like right. the Bronze Age, you know. Um, of course, Green Lantern, Green Arrow uh, yeah, by uh, Daniel Neal and uh, Neil Adams, right. uh, R.I.P. Yes. Um, 
Uh, yeah, it's exactly what I was going to say. The, the but, Green yeah. Arrow, Green Lantern uh, was was sort of very much. Oh, we're going to, but it, that wasn't even the first, right? Like, I mean, no. there's numerous uh, sixty late sixties Marvel stories that are very much like, hey, let's tackle something political. I mean, even the very early Spider Man have they're kind of on maybe on the wrong side, but they dealt with like the Vietnam War. The Iron Iron Man dealt with the Vietnam War. There's a Spider Man thing where he confronts protesters with Ditko's crankish uh, conservative politics instead of, you know, and, and like the creation of Black Panther. So like they were definitely like the, they've been trying to insert politics. Well, and, and let's not even forget how superheroes started by, you know, punching Nazis. I mean, it's not, it's yeah, a thing. I mean, Captain America, to- number one, he's punching Hitler in the face and they right. weren't at war yet. Like that's a clear political statement. Uh-huh. Exactly. Um, uh, but yeah, back, back to the book itself. Um, uh, one thing that, that struck me very quickly is um, while this is uh, in some ways trying to take like a serious look at superheroes, like there's um, there's sex and violence and interiority and, and stuff, it's still like very silly in um, like the uh, names and, and pop culture references and stuff. Say the main character is named David Brinkley, who was the name of an actual newscaster at the time. Uh, he's from the planet Kronk, and his weakness is the is the uh, mineral Kronkite. So <laughs> um, his uh, his parents who uh, who sent him from Kronk were uh, named Archie and Edith, um, and uh, they were uh, in the chapter that do- goes through his his origin. Sort of does it as a parody of uh, uh, Noah, built, you know, being told by God to build the ark. But the god telling them to build the spaceship is uh, the god Nietzsche. Hmm. Um, Thus, I I teach you the Superman. Exactly. Right. Um, yeah, and um, uh, his neighbor is uh, Kojak, like literally just the character Kojak from the TV hmm. show. Okay. Um, let's see. At one point, he runs into the uh, famous proctologist. Uh, Holden Caulfield. Okay. <laughs> so I guess he grew up to be a proctologist. Um, <laughs> well, uh, okay. Peter so P- clarify something for me. Y- that opening story sort of implies, and I know they probably didn't take this kind of stuff as that seriously, especially outside the actual world of superhero nerds, but it kind of implies it's set in the world of DC Comics. Um, yeah. Uh, Superman is real in this universe. He's dead, but he, he was real at one point. Um, Wonder Woman has retired, uh, but also the Lone Ranger existed, apparently like close to the present. Mm-hmm. Uh, Captain Marvel existed, but so did the analog in this book, Captain Mantra. Mm. Um, and uh, it also mentions Snoopy. Uh, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it's, it's basically a League of Extraordinary Gentlemen style universe where like all levels of um, pop culture exist. Right. But not but Marvel. Also, no, uh, Captain America is mentioned at one point. Oh, okay. Um, but that's one of the only references to Marvel that I, re- that I recall from it. Hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, so the, the basic plot is uh, David Brinkley, uh, as said at the beginning, uh, his superhero name is never mentioned in the book. Um, it, it's... Uh, I believe on the back cover of one of the first edition, he was called Everyman, but he's never referred to that in the actual book. Uh, he's also referred to as Indigo by the government agents, but that's clearly like a code name for him. Um, so, uh, and he he is a, a Superman analog, but he's not exactly Superman. Uh, he has uh, he has a mask uh, for one thing, uh, a different colors on his costume. Uh, he also has uh, to. Uh, Telepathy, apparently. It's never really used in the story, but uh, it says at one point that uh, he uh, used uh, telepathy to uh, get a warning about a tidal wave that was going to destroy New York, so he um, was able to stop it before it became a problem. It says, Wait, uh, so that's pre- pre-divination then, not telepathy, right? I don't know. <laughs> it, might, <laughs> just... it might just, it says telepathy, but it, I don't know. Maybe just not, um, yeah, being unclear on the definitions here. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, and it says, uh, he had won two golden Apollos that year in the annual Pantheon Awards ceremony on Saturn. Best feat using telepathic powers and best feat underwater. 
So I sort of like that idea that superheroes have a, an annual awards ceremony among <laughs> each other. Yeah. Like an industry award thing. Yeah, that's um, cool. Yeah, though the world building, as I've alluded to, makes no sense in this book. Like, Superman exists along alongside this guy who's clearly Superman. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, well, if you kill off Superman, that allows you the space to, you know, to reference it, but also, you know, to have your own Superman analog, right? Yeah, so. but, uh, like, they knew each other, like, they... <laughs> Yeah, anyway, yeah. Um, also uh, something that, that amused me, uh, David Brinkley has blue hair, which is a reference to Superman's hair being like every comic book character with with black hair had uh, was it was colored blue. But Superman's right. especially notable um, or like uh, a lot of people point out Superman has blue hair. So here he is like he just has blue hair and right. he doesn't disguise it in his secret identity and. Um, at the end of the book, it's revealed that all his close fa family and stuff knew and were just sort of humoring him. Because, you know, who else has blue hair? <laughs> um, and that's actually, come to think of it, Samaritan in, in yes. um, Astro City has say, blue hair. That's probably what he's referencing in, in, in Astro City with him having, but only in his superhero identity. Then he yeah, dies yeah, in, that, what, white? That's a when he's, yeah. That, yeah, Astro City is a little more... Um, uh, coherent as a world of than course this is, yeah but, um well this is this is explicitly a comedy what you're describing right this yes story, yeah. yes um it, it's definitely like uh got a lot of jokes in it like uh at one point there's a, a church of saint mary's and uh the uh there's a statue of mary and surrounding it is uh her apostles uh uh murray ted lou and the um and uh, also statues of the apostates uh, Rhoda and Phyllis. Oh, <laughs> um, the Mary Took Tyler me Moore show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that that amused me. Yeah. Um, and well, also, it's actually, uh, I think it's significant that that's probably. Well, no, I guess again, it would be the '60s, but like the era where you start to see all this like obsession with pop culture and TV, especially. Um, yeah. Like, like you can drop it into the you know like dropping it into the story in that way um yeah it's probably i think the 60s again and li again literally stan lee would do that in spider-man and so on that would be a that would be a common thing uh but yeah it, it's it's sort of like let me show off by putting in i got that reference you know without <laughs> it wasn't quite as obnoxious back then potentially but yeah this isn't uh, i don't feel this is like ready player one levels of right like it's making comments on stuff i guess <laughs> Um, let's see. Uh, oh yeah, it mentions at one point they go to a, a documentary, the invasions of the invasion of the body snatchers. Uh, hmm. So apparently that actually happened in this universe. Just right. One small town got invaded by pod um, people. You know what? I'm I'm actually wondering because you mentioned Kurt Busiek saw uh, was inspired by uh, was inspired toward Astro City by this. I wonder if um, this might be. Like it's kind of referencing the fact that pop culture is real, and it's a it's not just superheroes, but pop culture is real in this universe or whatever. And commentary on it's it's a world that's kind of built on a hyper exaggerated version of pop culture. Um, and I wonder if um, that's like because um, because that's something that Astro City does. It it uses it focuses specifically on superheroes and superhero adjacent characters, but it. It does that as a way of commenting on, like, showing a reflection of pop culture and especially American history. So, for instance, like, there's a, in the Dark Age, which is about uh, the 1970s, it literally uh, begins with uh, the, one of the main characters sort of wandering down the streets and the, the, the entire city is like a giant train wreck. And it's the, right at the beginning of the 70s, like the 60s just ended. And, he, and it was caused by this character called the, the LS Deviant, who created a, uh, uh, like a, 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 made everyone go on a bad trip, which also was real, like reality warped and bended, basically. And um, of course, that's a super, that's like the, the tail end of a superhero story, but it's also a metaphor for the 60s. Like it's people coming, getting, waking up from the 60s and going, what the hell just happened? Where are we? <laughs> like it, like that's obviously, you know, a pop cultural or a, or just general cultural reference. And that's the kind of thing Astro City does a lot. So I wonder if maybe this book is trying to do something similar, do you think? Or is that... Uh, yeah, it might be trying. It doesn't do it as well. Uh, I think there's 
some of the uh, references ju- do just seem like references or like little jokes or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, like, uh, for example, the uh, um, Lana Lang, uh, like his his high school crush, uh, Lorna Dune, is uh, revealed like she worked under her um, uh, screen name Linda Loveless, uh, the star uh, of Deep Throat. Yeah. Uh, hmm. So, yeah. Um, there, there are a lot of uh, very graphic sex scenes in this book as well, uh, and descriptions of, of erections and stuff. Uh, it's very much of that sort of era of the 70s where it's like, we can get away with this now. <laughs> and also, um, this is, makes it a serious book because it's all about sex and it's a sexual revolution. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, that's the other thing Watchmen does. Like, Watchmen has sex and violence in it, and violence in a sense that isn't superheroic. It's 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 very significant in Watchmen, the comic, that uh, none of the violence is ever like portrayed as this brutal or even like particularly visible thing. It it happens sort of between panels in in small moments, like like Rorschach breaking breaking someone's finger. Um, and that's like that was a novel way to portray violence in a superhero story. And sex at the same time is the same thing. And and it's it, it again we're kind of used to it now post Watchmen because it just became the default thing. But to to simply inject sexuality like explicit sex or explicit like quote realistic violence or even just excessive violence that isn't you know fun violence into a superhero story would have been really you know shocking and really. It re- would have really been dropping a bomb on people because it's seen as this goofy, kid-friendly thing. Yeah, that's something uh, uh, Morrison points out in the forward to my edition. Uh, they wrote the uh, the forward um, that um, uh, inviting uh, um, Robert Mayer, the author of this book, to try writing superheroes because they've sort of caught up to you at this point. Mm. Um, like, uh, sorry, comic books, like. You know, right, right, like right. Mainstream comics. And um, Robert Mayer is alive then and still writing. Or? I think so. Uh, he only seems to have written two novels. So mm-hmm. this and and one about JFK and the afterlife. I don't know. Well, we're still alive, and we'll be right back after these messages. For every episode of No More Whoppers that you listen to, we will send you a 25 cent coupon for participating Kroger's. How many Kroger's are participating? None, but you're still getting the coupon. And it's like 25 cents in 1985 dollars. Right, so today that's like... 28 cents. No More Whoppers, take that to the bank and smoke it. On the HyperX Podcast Network and nomorewhoppers.com. Make room for huge plays with the HyperX Alloy Origin 65 Mechanical Gaming Keyboard and the Pulsefire Haste Wireless Mouse. The Alloy Origin 65 has a functionally compact form factor, keeping the arrow keys without the pad and function keys. The Pulsefire Haste is the lightest wireless mouse from HyperX, featuring a robust connection up to 100 hours of battery life and is even water resistant. The Alloy Origin 65 and Pulsefire Haste Wireless. Keep your setup clean and clutter free with the Alloy Origin 65 mechanical keyboard and the Pulsefire Haste wireless mouse. Yeah, uh, let's see. So back, back to the plot of this. Um, David Brinkley is, uh, is 42. He's, he's uh, middle-aged. I guess he's not that old, but you know. <laughs> um, and he, he's retired. He's, he's lost his powers for the past um, eight years. And he's now married and and settled down, and he has kids, and he's just working as um, uh, at the newspaper again. Um, and uh, he finds, uh, and at at the same time, the uh, the city has uh, he lives in New York. Uh, the city has gone bankrupt, which it nearly did in real life around that time. And the cops uh, were on strike for not getting paid. And uh, apparently, because of that, there's a big there's big uh, uh, riots and, and mass looting, though we find out later that that was all staged. Um, and uh, he finds himself sort of at least feeling his powers again, at least a little bit. Um, and uh, he decides to try to, you know, put on the cape again and, and get back into it. Um, and then we find that there's the, there's been this um, big conspiracy thing now that he's active again, that... Uh, in order for the USSR to disarm, they're demanding that uh, the U.S. kill uh, codenamed Indigo, which is him. Um, and they're trying to figure out a way to do it. And there's a guy behind the scenes called Powell Pugh, 
who seems to be orchestrating everything. Uh, we learn later that this is uh, Pixie's, Zizzy's, Mixie's Pitlick. Let's just right. call him that. Okay, um, we'll call him call him Pixie then. I guess. Yeah. Which yeah. Okay. Pixie. Probably deliberate. That yeah. Sounds yeah, like that Pixie. Makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, and that uh, various criminals, uh, characters who have been orchestrating it, are also uh, references to comic characters. One of them is uh, Stretch O'Toole, uh, who was a criminal who fell into a vat of chemicals and now has stretchy powers and goes by Elastic Man. It's Plastic Man, but if he never stopped being a criminal, that's just his origin. Mm. Um, and uh, the other one, uh, the major henchman is... Uh, uh, De uh, Demoniac, um, which we learn is a character who, who has appeared throughout named Freddy News, who's a guy with uh, uh, crutches. And uh, we learn at, at the end that uh, Demoniac is uh, he's basically the uh, uh, analog for Captain Marvel Jr. in this book. Um, uh, Mary Mantra and uh, Captain Mantra were tied together uh, and uh, they, they were they were bound and or their mouths were gagged, so they couldn't say their magic word. And uh, they were bound together, and they ended up uh, doing an incest by accident. Ugh. And that produced the child, uh, Demoniac, who uh, got got adopted and and grew up all messed up. Um, and when he says the name Captain Mantra, he turns into a, a super being. Um, like I said, there's there's gross stuff in this. Um, though, uh, th this is at the end of a, um, uh, this is towards, this is the last act, and this is after a fight between, uh, David Brinkley and Demoniac that's actually really cool, uh, yeah, though I'll, I'll, I, I kind of should go through the plot. Uh, it turns out that, uh, um, this whole conspiracy was or orchestrated by Pixie, um, who, uh, has also been, uh, under human disguises, flooding the entire planet with and all the products on Earth and the atmosphere with Cronkite to weaken, to specifically weaken David Brinkley. So that's why he doesn't have his powers anymore. Wow. Um, uh, so, and uh, this is because Pixie has just decided he's tired of being a nuisance and he just wants to be evil now. Hmm. Which, again, is the motivation for uh, Mixie's Pidlick in uh, um, whatever happened in the Man of Tomorrow. So that's right. sort of the connection yeah. there. Though it's a very different story than that. Yeah. Overall. Well, I do like. I do like. Moore had like this very specific thing of uh, Mixes Pitlick was he had he had he had gone through different moral phases where he decided to be nothing but good, and then he decided to be like completely neutral, and then he decided to be a prankster, and now he's decided to be pure evil, basically like that. Yeah, and the, next I'll try to be guilty. I believe yeah, that's exactly. the line. Yeah, right. Um, though this, uh, yeah, there's also a reference to uh, Pixie. Uh, uh, doing something in 33 AD, but enough about that. Yeah, <laughs> that, right. that's in the text. Um, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so uh, uh, David Brinkley uh, manages to trick uh, uh, Elastic Man into shooting him into space, uh, which uh, gets uh, him out of the range of the Cronkite weak weakening stuff. And uh, this is the, the fight with Demoniac, which is actually really cool. Uh, uh, it's like a like two like galactically powered beings like flying through the cosmos, uh, fighting each other, like hiding out behind black holes and um, just scooting around planets and stuff. Um, it, it's a it's a way that uh, it's a superhero battle that I think only really would work in prose. Like you could do this in. Um, uh, in visually in comics or in a movie, but I don't think it would work as well. Like right. a lot of it, because it's such big, big spaces that are easier to just mention than they are to draw, you know? Right. Right. Like, I think a really talented artist could pull this off, but not the average, you know, superhero artist. Well, also, yeah, you're kind of like prose compresses things. You can, you can write, and then he punched him for a million years, right? Whereas to convey that in either comics or film or anything like that would be very difficult, you know? Yeah. Um, so, like, there, there are really, like, a lot of clever things in this book. Um, uh, yeah, and uh, say at one point, uh, Brinkley, um, uh, his plan to, to make uh, 
that the muggers were also set up by by Pixie, so the whole thing was just orchestrated to get him out in the open again. Um, David Brinkley uh, makes has two of his costumes made, one for uh, his accomplice, who it turns out is Peter Pan. Uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> who uh, well, flies Peter around. Peter Pan has a def- definite superhero aspect to him, so that's kind of yeah, yeah. clever. Yeah. And so uh, uses Peter Pan flying around to make the muggers think that he can still fly, you know? Hmm. And I mentioned Kojak is his neighbor, and that actually becomes a plot point later on, so that, that he meets Kojak's niece and they at an art show. Anyway, it, it's... Again, very, it, Kojak was the first, like, the, the opening thing ha- mentions, like, Superman and Wonder Woman and stuff, but I just sort of wrote that off initially as, like, just the opening. Uh, but then Kojak appears as his neighbor, and he's just, you know, acting like Kojak, you know, who loves you, baby? Well, they, or, like, they literally say his name is Kojak? or they, Yes. Okay. And he's he's a cop who's, who's retired, and, like, he, he has a lollipop, and, you know, mm-hmm. he, he's just Telly Savalas, you know? Yeah. That's really interesting because they, um, like, it shows you how uh, IP was not as carefully guarded in the 70s, right? You could just kind of toss all that stuff out and it was fair use and you weren't going to get sued for featuring all these characters. Like, I mean, it was it was probably a wild, ridiculous concept in 1977 that no one else would want to do. But nowadays, you know, this guy would have to, you know, clear it with a bunch of lawyers to get to do this kind of thing. Yeah, I think part. I think it might be covered under parody, but probably not because they just called him Kojak. So right. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he doesn't use any Disney characters, probably. <laughs> well, Peter Pan, but he was not yeah. a original. He's, a, he's public domain, yeah. Or yeah, well, yeah. actually, is he public domain because he's owned by the J.M. Barry? Like, he, uh, they... not anymore, I think. But uh, maybe at the time, yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, this this whole thing is very. Uh, uh, barely legal as it is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Simpsons line again. Um, uh, yeah, so uh, the sex stuff, because uh, it's a big part of this book. Um, say it goes into his uh, his time as a teenager. Um, he, uh, he found out pretty quickly that using his, uh, his X-ray vision, or they don't call it that, but, you know, I think it says gamma vision, um, for... Um, Un, uh, for salacious purposes, uh, results in an instant karmic thing where he, he'll bump into something or whatever, um, and he vowed never to do it, never to use it inappropriately. But nevertheless, as a uh, in high school, he was voted the most clumsiest kid in school. Yeah, and th- there's a there's a whole thing with uh, with his uh, a reporter girlfriend from when he was um, in his twenties named Peggy Poole. And the uh, uh, very uh, graphic dis- de- uh, descriptions of fellatio, and uh, apparently he's uh, he's impotent in his costume um, because he just gets performance anxiety because people expect too much of him. Uh, so I guess that's sort of the opposite of, of uh, Night Owl and Watchmen, then. Right. Who uh, can only, yeah. uh, at least uh, in that in that scene, can only have sex in his costume. Right. Um, yeah. Well, he regains his mojo by yeah, yeah. getting back yeah, that's into the costume. It's not quite the same it, thing, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah uh, and uh, uh, one of the last scenes. Oh, uh, so the Cronkite is sort of uh, infested the entire atmosphere, and he realizes that he he can't actually go home without permanently losing his powers, but he decides to anyway. Um, because he doesn't want to leave his wife and kids. Like, he could go to other planets and just be a hero, but uh, he wants to give it up. Which, uh, again, sort of similar to the ending of Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow, where um, he decides to uh, give up his powers. Um, though that's because he, he killed somebody, but... Uh, yeah. Sorry, uh, uh, so you're sorry. You're saying he, dis- he can't go home because uh, of his powers? No, no, he can't go home without losing his powers. I see, okay. Because Earth is just, uh, its whole atmosphere is filled with Kronkite right, at this point. Right, right, right. Well, this, okay, I should, I feel like I should, at this point, uh, talk about Marvel Man, Miracle Man, because that, like, I do see the parallels there. The, the point of, uh, Mar- I'm going to call him Marvel Man, even though 
that he's been changed to Miracle Man for copyright reasons, even though again the character predates Marvel Comics. Um, yeah. The uh, he. Um, <clears throat> The, uh, the original idea was just that he was a kid. It was, you know, it was a ripoff of Captain Marvel at the time. And it was that he grew up and forgot his magic world word and was also living in a real world that had no resemblance to like a crazy superhero reality. Uh, he remembered his magic word, turned back into Marvel Man, um, and then went about sort of figuring out what happened. And it was revealed that it was all a virtual reality experiment that he'd been in. Uh, but he did actually have superpowers. They were training him to become a a soldier, like a super weapon, essentially, uh, by giving a building this crazy superhero world. But it is uh, one thing that happens is that he, it, like you, you see this evolution throughout Miracle Man or Marvel Man, um, the the story, whereas where the world starts to change and he starts to change, and by the end he basically decides he can't be a uh, a regular human anymore. He just starts being. Uh, not, not even the end. Like the story keeps going for quite some time after that. Uh, but he won't be Marvel Man. He won't be his uh, his regular uh, Mike Moran, I believe was the character's name. Uh, Mick Moran. Um, he won't he won't uh, be his human self anymore. He'll be he, he's he's sort of ascended into godhood, and he will only be uh, this super being from now on. Um, and that's and there's like it's very poignant, it's a very sad moment. Um, his uh, I believe his wife is dead at that point. Um, and that's where he just says there's no point at this point in ever going back to being a human, and he sets about remaking the world in that way. Uh, so that kind of echoes what you're describing there, in, like in reverse, basically, kind of a kind of a tragic, uh, you know, surrender of humanity, essentially. Yeah, although in this case it's a tragic uh, surrender of heroics mm. or uh, of superhumanity, right. if you will. <laughs> and then, of course, at the end of as you said, I think you mentioned the end of whatever happened to the man of tomorrow has Superman giving up his superpowers, basically. So. Yeah. Um, with gold kryptonite. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and one of the final scenes is him getting a, a from what he thinks is, uh, uh, his, uh, old girlfriend, Peggy Poole, but it turns out it was actually Peter Pan. Um, so that, yeah, it, it's kind of, this book goes back and forth. <laughs> Hmm. Um, between um, actually really interesting stuff and some some real juvenile stuff, but uh, yeah, it's, it's it's that's an interesting thing again about pop superheroes, but pop culture in general in the '60s. Like there was definitely a th- we you you probably noticed it in um, the Illuminatus trilogy, for instance. Like there was yeah. a a gleeful embrace of the ridiculous and the silly and the the non-serious as a way to get through to like actual interesting and serious ideas. But it, it, you know, like the, the explosion of counterculture and, you know, drug use, but also just the way the culture went in the sixties was, you know, you were allowed to just be kind of ridiculous and stop taking things seriously. Camp uh, exploded in that era. Um, It was, it was a sense of like, let's stop taking ourselves so darn seriously um, and again, it, you, you kind of, it filtered through into interesting ideas sometimes. And, and I think it was also partly an, like, that's when the pop art movement started, which was kind of looking at art and saying, like, or looking at pop culture, like trashy pop culture and saying, well, maybe there's something here that's kind of interesting if we break it up and filter it through a weird lens. And, uh, you know, but, so it was just basically a lot more, um, you were allowed to do that kind of ridiculous stuff in a, in, in something that could be seen as somewhat serious. Although, as you say, it's still a comedy, and I don't think you could do a pure, purely serious story that <laughs> that went as ridiculous as that. But it was definitely a, it's definitely a thing that started to show up around the 60s and 70s, and still kind of exists, but it's not as it's not as prominent anymore. Like if you're doing a a comedy, you have to kind of lay out how you're. Oh, I'm parodying this. It's okay because it's a parody. Whereas if you just silly, it's it's silly. You know, you, people don't like that. They respond badly. Let alone, as we all know, to actual superhero stuff. You're not allowed to be silly with superheroes anymore because it's it's serious business. <laughs> um, you mentioned uh, Illuminatus trilogy, and uh, one aspect really did remind me of that, and that's just casual use of racial slurs. Um, which, yeah, again, the '70s, like it felt like we can get away with this. So you know. Um, I, this book doesn't feel like it. Like the people who say it are, are usually like the bad guys. Say Freddie News, the uh, the um, 
Captain Marvel Jr. Uh, uh, analog is uh, said to be the uh, world's most cheerful bigot, um, and he'll just casually, um, you know, say all the all the muggers last night were, you know, n words. And uh, yeah. David Brinkley would say, "I hear that's actually statistically not true." And this, that's what they tell you. You can't yeah. trust what you read in the newspapers. And also that um, he'll set up signs for, uh, for like lunch at his stand and uh, uh, make the U sort of look like a Y, and he thinks that's really amusing. Um, well, that was uh, that that was actually a thing again in the sixties and seventies. Like it was it was when suddenly like racial issues expl- and I mean other you know minority oppression, women and 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 to a certain extent LGBT people like their their the visibility of that those kind of issues exploded on the onto the scene and there was so much racism around that it was just like you would address the racism and these stories that are clearly anti-racist but they would in like they would look unflinchingly and just be very open about the racism that was existing and not and not even sort of openly wagging a finger it's it's an anti-racist story but it would just be like yeah but there's people like this who use the n-word casually and there's horrible visual stereotypes and all this they all exist out there and this is like attempting to sort of subvert it and explode it because it was the culture people were stewing in and now it was being like to rub it in someone's face at the time i'm not gonna i'm not gonna defend like a lot of it was white maybe what well-meaning white people but it was still like white people trying to to you know, get some heat off of taking a stand for racism while enforcing the racial ideas. But part it came with the, this idea that came in the '60s that if you're telling a real story and it's really cool and important, you have to really tackle with all the ugly side of life, man, and really rub it in people's face, right? And that that would lead to like racism being embraced. You see it at, as late as like some of Stephen King's stuff, where he's you know he's he's a liberal guy, he's anti-racist, but he. He, he quite willingly has characters tossing around the N word, and because that's because that's how people are, man, and that's kind of the attitude, yeah. right? Yeah, it definitely feels like that. It this book definitely is of its time. Like it couldn't have been written in any other decade. Like you could have <laughs> not told me that this was from the seventies, and I would have realized it was from the seventies from the references and the, mm. and the way it's it's written. Um, yeah, like maybe I wouldn't have been able to pinpoint when in the decade, but like, yeah, it yeah. really feels seventy-seven in particular too. Um, well, actually, since you mentioned it, I noticed that this is literally the year right before uh, Superman the movie came out, and there was kind of a re-interested explosion in superheroes around that time. Yeah, um, though this is, uh, you know, uh, obviously the movie hadn't come out yet, but this is uh, very, like, this is obviously written by somebody who knew the comics. Um, like there's a lot of, uh, I guess Mixie's Pit like wouldn't have been that uh, obscure at the time, but I don't know. There's, there's, there's some uh, relatively deep cuts. I feel like I, uh, Captain Marvel Junior. and Elastic mm-hmm. and Plastic Man being referenced and that sort of thing. I I um, think what you probably saw around that time was a lot of people who uh, had read comics as a kid outgrown it. And then gotten back to it later and kind of said, oh, I don't know, is there something here? It's it's weird to look at this in an adult. I think the Batman 66 TV show had a bit of that vibe, where yeah, it was like definitely. adults looking back at their kids, their childhood yeah, superheroes. Yeah, and, there's also a lot of references to, to brands and stuff. Uh, uh, like uh, when it mentions uh, uh, David Brinkley's old enemies, uh, it includes among uh, Pixies, whatever, um, uh, Logar, the Mad Scientist, Univac, and Oreo. Um, yeah. Re- references to Brainiac and Br- Bizarro, um, but they're brand names. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. Uh, take well, or leave so- some of it. Like, some of it doesn't work, especially in the light of modern times, but there's a lot of interesting stuff in this book, and I think it's, it's worth reading, at least from an historical perspective. Though, well, again... It- racist issues a lot of you know yeah well from from that in that sense that actually describes a lot of superheroes up until watchmen or at least until some of the maybe the 70s like that actually is superhero comics we've a, a lot of the project of superhero comic writing since watchmen has been to to let people know by people who maybe 
I, in my opinion, don't get it quite as much. It's been about, you know, super, no, Superman's are, superheroes are serious business and they're, they're important and it's real literature and so forth and so on. But, you know, as everyone knows, if you go back past a certain point, it is really, even the, 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 the really good stuff is very silly and exists in its own little, uh, you know, space in terms of how it's written and how it's, how it's, how the stories are told uh, which which does not translate to a naturalistic story or what we would think of as serious literature at all. You have to view it through the lens of partly being, you know, kind of a kid when you read it, but also just having this sort of weird, open-minded ability to embrace this, this completely other style of storytelling that, that has fallen. And then it fell by the wayside partly because of Watchmen, right? Yeah. Um... And I... What you're describing in this book sort of sounds the same to me. Like it's the same kind of, you know, gleefully embracing the stupid and pushing past yeah. it to maybe do something important. I don't know, <laughs> or not important, but like interesting anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I can't give this a wholehearted recommend, but I, I do think it's uh, it's a fascinating sort of look into an era, into into a worldview, into just. Um, like not even what could have been, because this is basically like like Grant Morrison said. This is, with a few exceptions, basically how superhero comics are now. Yeah. Um, in a lot of ways, uh, not not every way, but like um, uh, dealing with with sex and violence and stuff, uh, and you know, real world issues. I'm, and um, at least on certain levels, trying to take it seriously. Um, yeah, it's it's really uh, uh, forward looking in in a lot of ways. Yeah, uh, and it's interesting looking at this as a as a step in the process that led to where we are now. Yeah, very cool. Creeping Cronkite. Well, folks, our powers are fading, and it's time for us to retire into a life of the mundane. At least until next episode. We've been extra-dimensional elf Philip Rice and stretchy career criminal Adam Prosser. Our producer was the hooded supervillain Alex Ross, and our theme song was composed by Jack Pyrrhic when he called out his magic word. Uh, just a reminder, we both have a Patreon, which helps pay for hosting costs and everything else. Uh, if you subscribe to either of us, you can listen to this podcast early every time, as well as getting bonus material, cut footage, and illustrations and comics, among other things. Uh, just go to Patreon and search for Philip Rice, one L, or Adam Prosser with two S's, or neversleepsnetwork.com slash series slash what-mad-universe for the links. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at WMU Podcast or Prankster36 for me or Spearhalfock A for Philip. Oops, I just gave away our secret identities. Uh, also, check out a website I've uh, created called uh, Heroes, or I'm working on called uh, HeroesLive.tv, which is uh, a site that has uh, both streaming film and comics. Uh, Phil, Philip's own uh, The Apex Society is there, uh, as is my own work. Um, it's well worth it if you subscribe for a year it's only sixty dollars uh there's already tons of great indie content there it's kind of an indie netflix slash indie comiXology uh so well worth uh well worth checking out if you're interested okay so until next time keep fighting for truth justice and all that stuff <laughs>